0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Solana podcast. It's your guest host, once again, Joe McCann. And today I'm super excited to introduce the one and only Nigel Eccles. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. So, Nigel, I want to jump right into it. Can you talk a bit about your background and ultimately, how did you get into crypto or Web3 or however you want to define it?
1: Yeah. So I've got about 20 years experience in consumer tech, mostly in sports. I'm originally from the UK. I'm originally from Northern Ireland. And around 2000, I was involved in a, I guess, a dot com, a company called Flutter.com, as a product manager that I launched them as a, as a betting exchange. And then since then, I've been involved in a lot of different startups. The one that I launched in 2009 was a daily fantasy sports product called FanDuel. And a lot of you, if you're into sports, you almost certainly will be familiar with FanDuel uh, because not only is it uh, a very big fantasy sports operator, it's now a very big uh, sports betting operator. So sort of long history, I've always built consumer products. Uh, I've always been focused on sort of B2C and, and, and kind of trying to innovate and bring, bring new kind of consumer products together. And so since then, uh, I left FanDuel about four years ago. And since then, I've actually launched uh, three companies that are all in the consumer space.
0: Wow. So three companies. Um, So when are you going to do something with your life? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, they're all
1: kind of in their sort of early stage. So, you know, they're all kind of in that sort of promise phase. So it's kind of exciting. But, you know, every day is still, you know, there's still a lot of challenge. You know, they're all still, you know, pretty
0: early stage. Gotcha. Well, we'll dive into each one of those uh, in a minute. Can you maybe talk just a little bit about your journey of getting into crypto and then specifically Solana? So,
1: like I'm not super early. I you know, I've always been I've been aware of it for a long time, but you know, 2017 was when I first got into it. Given that I've only ever really been inter- interested in the consumer side, you know, in 2017 I really dived in and was like, Wow, this this looks awesome. I, I remember reading about Ethereum. I, I never really had any interest in Bitcoin because I never really felt I had much money. And so I never really thought, What's the point? <laughs> like I don't really have much money. Bitcoin to me seemed to be a great Place if you had money and you wanted to store wealth. I didn't have any. So that seemed kind of mute to me. Uh, whereas Ethereum seemed incredibly exciting. So I got really interested in Ethereum. I also spent a lot of time looking at all the sort of alternative coins in 2017. I remember going through Coin Market Cap coin by coin and sort of going, okay, that looks totally pointless that looks like all promise but like no technology that looks like that one above uh, and really getting down to about 50 and actually chatting to some friends are in the sector uh, or that one looks totally scammy and just being fairly disillusioned um in the end i bought ethereum and toyed with some of the stuff that was closer to being consumer ready like I say, CryptoKitties, one of my former colleagues actually set up RareBits, which was an OpenSea competitor, which was like an NFT product back in 2017. And so he dabbled a bit, but really at the end of 2017 said, this isn't even close to being ready for consumers. This is so hard to actually buy an NFT. And it wasn't even clear what you would do with it, regardless of any other form of transaction or paying for something. It was slow. It was expensive. And I didn't see in the short term, it was going to get there. And so I sort of went back to focusing on, on Web2 things over the, the following few years. In 2020, then, I started to actually get interested in NFTs again. Interestingly enough, the, the first ones I looked at were Top Shot, which you know, bubbled up very early in 2021, uh, and then uh, sort of crashed again, uh, and Nifty Gateway. Uh, so similarly, they had nice onboarding in that Both of them you could buy in with a credit card. But they both were kind of a gateway for me to kind of say, oh, I get this now. Like, this is actually pretty smooth. And once I had an NFT, I was pretty bitten by it. It's like, okay. Because the first NFTs I ever bought was through a credit card. Then I went through the whole process of really understanding, trying to get my head around the infrastructure underneath it. Gotcha.
0: And that lended itself to probably some ideating on your end. One of these three companies you launched or projects companies, whatever we call them these days, is Vault. Can you talk a little bit about what Vault is and where the idea came from? And and frankly, like what's kind of the plan with Vault?
1: Sure, absolutely. So yeah, so Vault, you know, it's still very new, but we had been working with creators for about three or four years. And what we've been trying to do was to help them find a way to create a small space where they would bring in their very top fans and they would monetize them directly. And so if you ever read any material from this, like Lee Jin is is by far the leader here. And we were talking to her three, four years ago. And what we were sort of trying to do is create this native mobile experience. And native was very important to us because if you look at consumption of media by consumers, you know, 90 to 95% of it is mobile. It's a native app. Whenever you do anything with consumers, they'll always say, when's the app coming out? And you'd and you try and probe them and say, well, we've got really good mobile web. And then they'd go, when's the app coming out? And so... Instead of fighting it, we were like, look, it has to be native mobile. So we spent several years trying to build that uh, native community, but it's really hard. What we found was it's hard to get people off existing platforms like uh, YouTube, Instagram, or Spotify. It, it's just hard to get them off. And then secondly, it's very hard to monetize them, particularly when Apple and Android are going to take a 30% cut. And so in about early 2021, when I started to dabble quite seriously with NFTs, realized that actually, this was a really interesting technology. And we said, this is a fascinating technology because I, as a creator, can actually monetize my work. I can actually sell something. Actually, if you think about it, it's much more like in the analog world where I can create something of value and sell it. Previously to that, In a digital world, it was very, very hard to do that because the person really struggled to buy something. When you could always right-click, copy something, it was very hard to do. Now, with NFTs, that had sort of provable providence. You had ownership. And so we thought, this is really interesting. We, We could definitely use this technology. And when we dabbled with the NFTs, what we discovered was that lots of artists were really fascinated about it. Immediately, they sort of said, this is great. But... What we also found was a lot of them felt excluded. So if you're a graphic artist, you're like, fantastic, finally. You know, a technology that, you know, people can discover by art. Like if you speak to a graphic artist, like NFTs is just such a like a revelation to them. But a lot of the other artists, particularly like music artists, were like, you know, NFTs are fantastic, but it's not very authentic to what I do. And so if you actually look in early 2021, Grimes, Stevie Aoki and a lot of other music artists actually experimented with NFTs. But they didn't really perform that well. Like those NFTs are down between 60 and 90% in value from their mint price. And, and a lot more musicians actually just didn't do them. They just sort of said, look, it just doesn't seem authentic. It doesn't seem to be, the, you know, the sort of artist I am. And it doesn't feel the right thing for me to be, you know, selling to my, uh, to my fans. And so we sort of said to ourselves, well, why should this technology limit the sort of art that could be shared. Like, why should it just be limited to graphic art? And also we thought it was interesting, you know, everyone kind of laughs at the sort of the right, or they kind of mock the right click brigade, but they actually do have a point, which is, yes, you have ownership, but you have no exclusivity over this content, right? There's anyone can see it. And we sort of thought there was something interesting if what if, we could A, remove the restrictions from the artist, and B, create some exclusivity. So maybe only the people who own that NFT can actually see this piece of content. And that was basically the background of the idea to Vault. And so what Vault is, is a platform where artists and, and some of the biggest artists that are coming on will be music artists, would create a vault and they would then mint keys to that vault. And they would say, okay, I'm going to create 1,000 keys. I'm going to have a mint price of... whatever price they set. That's fully set by the artist. And then those NFT keys act as keys into a vault. And in that vault, the artist can put any type of media that they want. And that can be music, that can be video, that can be picture, that can be text. It can even be hyperlinks into other things like into merch or into live experiences. But the key thing there is that only the people with that NFT key can actually see
0: what's in the vault. That's so cool. So you hear a lot in the NFT world about these, you know, token-gated communities. Yeah. And you're quite literally giving out keys or the artists, I should say, are literally giving out keys to get access to things that only the folks that have those keys can, can access to. It's a really cool concept. And have you seen novel or unique things that these artists are doing? Or is it pretty straightforward? Like, hey, here's like, you know, me eating breakfast, or this is like my workout playlist or whatever. Like, what are kind of the, the, the interesting use cases you've seen that artists have come up with um, in in their vaults?
1: Yeah, it's a really good
0: question, and it's
1: often just before I come to there. The other thing that we've done is we've made it very simple for the fan to consume the media, and we've made it very simple for the creator to create the media. So on the fan side, you know, typically when you have this like NFT gated community, you know, you have to go to the Discord and then you have to authenticate via Club Ladder Grape, which takes about. 23 different attempts, uh, you know, and and just in frustration, it seems to have worked, although you're not sure. uh, And sometimes the channels show up and sometimes they don't. Like it's a really clunky experience and I'm not really criticizing them. I know it's a technically challenging thing to do. What we have done is that we allow people to create an account that then links to their NFT and authenticates very smoothly. So that's number one. The linkage between the account and the NFT is very smooth. If they then sell that NFT, we actually know the address to look in and we automatically look and say, no, they've sold it. They don't have access anymore. Secondly, from the artist perspective, again, that's a challenge for them. It's like, where do they put their content? What we've done is we've allowed them to add content to this native app that is seamless. Like basically, if you can add media to Instagram, you can use Vault. It is literally like one click, grab the media, drop it in. So on the question of what use cases we've seen, a huge range, but I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. One that we're seeing is the artist album drop. So what when albums are being dropped now... Normally, they're going straight to Spotify. Sometimes some artists are also doing vinyl because they have a fan base that wants to collect. What Some of the artists we're working with are saying, actually, you know, that vinyl is $30. Why don't we have a $60 premium vault drop, which will not only have the music in it, but will also have some other special things it will have some of the inspiration behind the music. It'll have the cover art. It will have voice memos from me. Some, all that sort of backstory to the album. That's been a really interesting one. Another one music artists are are working with us on is the tour drop. So I'm going on tour next month. I'm going to be traveling for the next three months. Both myself and my team will be taking lots of like social media. What I'm going to do is every day drop pieces of content from that tour. So my fans can actually travel the country with me and see behind the scenes uh, material that they would never otherwise see. So that that's a really exciting one, and we've we've got a few artists we're talking to about doing that on upcoming tours. And then the third one, in a different category, which is athletes. So last year, uh, college athletes got name, image, likeness rights. So before, they couldn't be paid, they couldn't monetize their name. That has changed. But the challenge for a lot of them is like, okay, but what do I sell, right? And so we've seen some of them advertise a local car dealership. But they sort of feel like, again, it feels a little inauthentic. They have this huge fan base. And what we've been talking to them is say, well, what you really should be doing is creating a vault and showing people... What goes into that Saturday game day? What goes into getting to March Madness? So we're working with a number of athletes now that are, you know, doing vaults like road to the NFL. Like, this is how I got to the draft. You know, the training that goes on behind the scene. And the interesting thing at a college level is we have boosters on the other side who want to buy the keys. So we have, you know, a really brilliant market emerging, which is you have boosters said, look, we want to support these athletes. And we have these uh, athletes coming to the college, God, well, we'd love to tell the story of what we're doing. And and that's becoming a nice market.
0: It's so cool because, you know, I think one of the cool things that happened with Instagram is that, when it really started to take off with celebrities and athletes and musicians, it's that fans felt closer to them because they could see like, Hey, you know, they're in this tour stop, right. Or they're just literally eating their lunch or whatever the thing may be. It just felt more personable. And what it sounds like this, this feels like maybe the second derivative of that, where not only are you going to start to be able to see like, Hey, the behind the scenes of, Mm -hmm. you know, such and such band on tour, but also the, spectrum of the media that could be produced and consumed by the fans is huge. Yes. One thing I wanted to point on uh, that you mentioned earlier that I think is important is the user experience. You mentioned just like authenticating really easily and being able to add content as simple as Instagram. Given the experience you have in in consumer related tech, can you talk a little bit about maybe your, your, your broader ethos on this? Because I know that Certainly with kind of DeFi 1.0, it was like, hey, we're just a bunch of hackers and academic engineers and we're just creating primitives. But you know, those some of these apps are just painful to use. And now we're starting to see a big emphasis on user experience because yeah. quite literally it'll help onboard more people. Can you kind of walk us through that being at the forefront for Vault and even, you know, potentially the other the other products that you're working on?
1: Absolutely core. Um so the co-founder of Vault, my co-founder of vault also co-founded Fandil with me. He was our head of product design and user experience. And so he handled everything from the design of the product through to customer service. And he's a world-class designer. There's kind of no way, two ways around that. And, you know, what he sort of brings to it is just a completely smooth flow. Like we want to get millions, hundreds of millions of people into crypto but we want to make it a smooth experience. And we think that one day, yes, maybe everybody does self-custody, but that won't be their first experience. We have to give them value that isn't just coin goes up. It has to be something that is cool that like me, I go, that's cool. I'd really actually like to learn and understand the underlying technology and what else it does. And so if we look at what Vault works, we've actually enabled in-app payments. So, you know, people were like, "I didn't even know you could do this at Apple," and they're like, "You can." Like, they're not opposed to this. So, it, what happens is a creator creates a vault. They set a price. Let's just say they set it at a hundred dollars a key. Um, and it can't go as low as twenty. One of the Beauties about uh, Solana is that it's low transaction costs. You know, things shouldn't cost hundreds or thousands of dollars. You know, if somebody is a fan of a of a a band like and they want to buy a vault, they should be able to buy something for $20. So we we could price it as low as $20. The user can either buy with Solana, we give them the option with Solana, or they can buy with an in-app payment. And that in-app payment is two clicks. Uh, most people have their credit card already. Uh, on their phone, and suddenly they are owning an NFT that is built on Metaplex, built on Solana, that they can then take off platform at a later date and self custody. But they can have the full experience of owning that NFT and seeing the content without ever touching Solana, without ever buying crypto, without ever installing a,
0: a wallet. Amazing. Yeah. Isn't it weird how people just want things that are fast and cheap? <laughs> yes. You know, yeah. <laughs> such a novel concept. Yeah. There's a there's a very
1: good book uh, in usability. Uh, it goes back a few years called Don't Make Me Think. And it's yeah, perfect, right? Like, you know, I, so many times people are like, you know, you give them options or give them this. You're like, no, just make it really easy. And make if you can give easy, them a, yeah. a, a straight line for them to get to where they want, you know, the number of people you're on board will be several magnitudes higher than than if you make them learn every step along the way.
0: I totally agree, and you know I think this may get to my next question around why Solana, and it mm-hmm. seems probably patently obvious at this point. But given that you have this experience in consumer tech, given that you built Fanduel or were co-founder with Fanduel, and I don't want to diminish the massive team that brought mm-hmm. this to market and maintains it. While you were evaluating Web three related tech, and and you know this is not meant to be kind of like a layup question, but like, you look at Solana versus some of the other ones. Yeah. And it's not that these other chains are bad. But when you're trying to design an experience that is seamless, and yeah, as friction free as possible, and, you know, using the principle of don't make me think, what was it that kind of made you and your tech team say, you know what, we're going with Solana because user experience is going to be so much better?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And, you know, it's funny, like sort of the level of maxiness on, on Twitter. We have gone all in on an L1, but we've tried to be very clear headed, objective viewpoint. Because we're betting millions of dollars that this is the right decision. We're investing in an L1 because we think that this is going to be the best platform for us. If if it was a different one, we would totally have gone that that different route because we can't be religious about it. We, we, we just don't, you know, we don't have the money to like say, hey, we're going to invest in L1. That's not going to be the winner. But for some reason, we're going to do that. So... We started the process and even today, we continue to look at other alternatives. You know, I I regularly look at Polygon, I regularly look at Arbitrum, I look at Avalanche, I look at Near, because, you know, again, we're not religious. What led us to Solana, though, was a number of factors. Obviously, the, the obvious headline ones, fast and cheap, but not just fast and cheap, but actually that being, it was designed to be that, that that was the criteria around how it was built. And that was important to us because it, we knew that, you know, if in three, four years' time that you know it got more congested, there was more demand, that the core team wouldn't be going. Well, that's okay, <laughs> you know, like that, that's we're fine with that, you know, because other things are successful we sort of felt that there was a commitment from the core team. No, fast and cheap is core to this product. We're not going to like, you know, the core to this platform. So that was really important. The other factors we felt were that even at that point, and this is early 2021, it had good momentum. And that again was important. We didn't want to make a technically great choice, but you know, all the momentum is going another direction and everything over the last 12 months has continued to convince us that was the right decision. We also were impressed by this sort of core team, like Raj and Anatoly were straight on, very first call, you know, somebody who's come from web too. I, personally, I thought that was great, you know, that we can reach out to somebody and say, look, we're having issues with this and they've been incredibly supportive. I thought that was a huge factor as well. And then the last thing I'd say that I've noticed about Solana is that I think there's a much stronger design ethos in Solana than I've seen in the other blockchains. Like, I don't want to say anything bad about other ones, but some other blockchains I've been on, I think I cannot understand how they've made these design decisions. And I think some of it is a laziness about EVM, which is like, well, it, it just works, you know, like it's EVM compatible, so people will figure it out. And I think Solana has gone down a slightly harder road, but it has forced people to say, no, we're going to design this for humans. And so I guess that handicap in a way has actually improved it. And so something like Phantom, it is 10x better than MetaMask. Like without a doubt, I use MetaMask every day, and I'm always still fascinated that, for example, NFTs that I've sold like six months ago are still in my wallet. (laughs) And I think there's a a setting somewhere where I could change it to like, Take those out, but the idea that they don't understand that that would be something I would want natively is is kind of weird so so those are you know it's like four or five major reasons, and I think there's still a very, very large gap. We made the decision we were committed about sixty eight months ago, but you know it, since then it's only got stronger the thesis
0: yeah you you bring up a, a number of of points that I try to bestow upon a number of the founders of of startups and projects that I'm advising is look, you don't have to be religious about your technical you know, solutions or choices, but I do think it's important to recognize that, hey, if your application or protocol is super successful, are you going to have to do what Axie Infinity did and build your own scaling solution, yeah. right? Are Are you willing to staff that? Or do you mm-hmm. have the resources for that? Do you have the desire to do that? Yeah. I think the second aspect is, is and again, this isn't a, anti-L2 conversation. It's that, in my view, when you add an L2 to your technical architecture, I have this running joke that the reason it's called an L2 is because now you have two problems. It's not just the L2 that you're building on, but you also have an upstream dependency on the L1. And so I think a lot of the technical decision-making early on is critically important to understand in the case that you do have this wildly successful app or protocol. And furthermore, to your point, you know, Solana made some intentional design decisions that added some constraint around the protocol and, and furthermore, the kind of applicability of the protocol. And I think you know, we're still early days-ish with, with what's possible on it. And we're definitely have been pressure testing the network quite a bit but I think longer term, this is currently going to be the chain that's going to enable those types of you know, truly immersive, rich Internet experiences that users are accustomed to on mobile apps and web, too, um, without having to have all this additional complexity. And I, I take your point. A 1,000% with MetaMask. And I take nothing away from that team. But at the same time, you know, Phantom has brought user-centric design to the wallet. And that's super important for onboarding and more importantly, for the apps that will ultimately be uh, connected to those wallets. So uh, I, I hear you 100% on that So I know we're coming up on time pretty good. I wanted to switch gears quickly to talk about bet decks because this is actually how we met. Mm-hmm. Um, we were introduced by a mutual friend, Mm-hmm. He told me about your background and he told me that, you know, you were considering building on Solana and it was it was a fascinating idea. And I said, would love to convert him to to build this <laughs> on Solana. Can you talk about what Betdex is and and, you know, kind of w- what you're excited about Betdex for? And then also, again, maybe like the design decision as to why you chose Solana.
1: Yeah, so Betdex is a uh, sports betting protocol. The way to think about it is there's something like 2 trillion dollars bet every year on sports globally. But that 2 trillion dollars is basically split among tens, maybe even hundreds of thousands of different sports books. So, you know, we take FanDuel as an example. is quite a big sports book, but all the money they take, they they they're the counterparty. They take that counterparty risk. All the money that DraftKings takes, or say some of the other ones Bet Rivers takes, they all take that counterparty risk. And so if you're one of those smaller sports books and a somebody like a Matt Mac comes in with a million dollars, you can't take that because you can't take the counterparty risk. The way that BetTex imagines the world is says, well, what if all of those sports books could basically share their liquidity in a central pool? Now prior to crypto they probably wouldn't have wanted to do that because who would own that platform you know how, what the governance would be there would be lots of different challenges there on that actual protocol well what Betdex works as, is because it's going to be a decentralized protocol, which will be owned through its token holders, which may be many of those different applications, they then can pool their liquidity into a central exchange. And so someone betting on uh, FanDuel could be, in effect, counterpartied with somebody in the UK betting on a completely different website, and they don't actually need to know that. So basically, Betdex is the glue that's going to plug together all these different sports books that gives us kind of global liquidity pool
0: super cool and given your obvious experience with fanduel how can how would you kind of uh juxtapose the two like fanduel was for you know this type of a world or environment and this is how betdex is different
1: yeah, so they're actually very different. And you know, one day, like my aspirations that Vandal would use BetDex. They don't have as immediate a need because they're a big sports book, so they don't. You know, mattress Mac comes and they'll say, "I'll take that liability." The way we want to see it is, we'll actually build the very first application, which will also be called BetDex. That's a licensed sports book in Malta that will take bets from over a hundred different countries. Unfortunately, not the US, certainly initially, but basically, what will then happen is we will actually open source that code and say to other operators, look, you can also build uh, your own application. In fact, take our code, put your own logo on it, put your own brand on it, and then you can interface with Betdex as well and then existing operators like DraftKings, like FanDuel, can say, wait a second, there's this huge liquidity. Why are we managing all this risk ourselves? Why don't we pull some of our liquidity in here? Like, maybe I carry 90% of the risk of the money coming in and I just blow 10 Percent onto this exchange, and so Betdex is really a protocol, and Fanduel really is an application that then would use that protocol, like all of these other sports books.
0: Got it. Very cool. You mentioned something that hits home for me as an American that once again we are unfortunately, you know, geo fenced, if you will, to a lot of the innovation that's happening in crypto and Web three. Yeah. Given your experience uh, with Fanduel and certainly setting up Betdex. Can you talk a little bit about like the the policy risk you know you mentioned a hundred different countries and you know how do you navigate that because you know the the sports betting regulations in say the u k are are very different than they would be in say New Jersey, right, and maybe even different than they are in south africa so how how do you think about managing that and and but and again, not kind of sacrificing the end user experience for folks that are using beds
1: yeah that's a very good point, largely. The regulatory issues sit at the application layer. You know, very similar to AWS typically does not have to deal with betting regulations. You know, it's the application that builds on top of it. So BetDex is very simple. They're a protocol. It's up to those applications built on top. So, for example, BetDex, the application is regulated in Malta, you know, we are going through a very long process with the Maltese Gaming Authority. And I was on the call with them yesterday, going through my source of wealth. And, you know, they want all my bank account details. They want I've been fingerprinted. You know, that's the process. So that's a process that happens at the application level. Basically, the protocol just works with those applications. And so it's kind of agnostic to do that. It's the applications that deal with the regulation. I will say that With FanDuel before, we went through a lot of regulatory issues with FanDuel as a fantasy sports product, then becoming a sports betting product. I'd say my personal view in the U.S. regulatory process is it always gets messy before it gets better. And I see that with crypto as well. I'm actually probably one of the few crypto regulatory optimists um, in that I... Like I see what I see, what's happening today. And some of it is kind of ridiculous. And a lot of it is through lack of understanding. But some of it, I think it is genuinely, you know, vested interests, acting in their vested interests. But I also feel that like fantasy football was, crips was just too popular. There's too many people have it. It's too beneficial to consumers. And it brings two things to politicians, what they love, which is money and votes. And so I am very bullish longer term but there's going to be speed bumps on the way.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think you and Sam at FTX are definitely regulatory (laughs) optimists. I am cautiously optimistic, but I do believe that there's a growing momentum, certainly in the United States, about bipartisan support for candidates who are pro-crypto. And I think this is a very real movement that's happening in DC. I know there's lobbying groups, there's super PACs being set up. So I agree with you. I think that there's going, to be, um, there's going to be some bumps along the way. There will probably be some blunders and bureaucratic mistakes if history serves us well. But at the end of the day, I think that to your point, I mean, it's so popular nowadays and, and you know, the, the kind of rebranding of crypto to Web3, which now encompasses things like NFTs, which is bringing culture into crypto, which is bringing video games into crypto, which is bringing you know, fantasy sports and force betting into crypto. It feels like we're on a path towards this reaching some sort of consumer safety slash normalcy. And so I guess the, 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 the next question that I had was, if I'm a kid nowadays, I know you have some kids. I have I have a, a son, but he's he's much too young uh, to even be using a computer. One of the fascinating things that I think about kids these days is that, you know, the concept of a video game or the concept of, of art or the concept of a sport is just so different. Can you talk a little bit about, about maybe how even just like conversations with your kids, or or your view on the youth, is influencing some of the decision making and what you're doing with the projects that you're that you're helping launch.
1: Yeah, it is very interesting, and I, I've got three kids, um, and they're all gamers. So, and, and they're from 17 down to eight. So it's kind of a broad range. You know, it's interesting how. You know, they're Discord native, I would say. Um, and obviously, uh, Discord is prevalent in crypto. I'd say that they're all very familiar with NFTs. It's not such an alien concept to them that I think it is to people, maybe my generation. This like, really, you spend money on something that's virtual. They, they have that experience. And when they're gamers, I think they're a little skeptical of NFTs in games, like a lot of gamers are, because I think they see that historically, a lot of the games companies have used innovations like this to not to make the game experience better, but to actually to make more money. So they, they look at them a lot of times and say, they, they like NFTs in their own right, and they're interested and they've, they've, they've all bought and sold them because they look at them and they say, okay, these are loot boxes. This is another way to get money from me for something that I probably should have got in the first instance. So that's been really interesting. You know, they are very natively digital. Like, I think that's what's very clear that a large part of their life, a vast majority of their life is is digital. And so the concept of a digital life is something that's totally innate to them.
0: Yeah, you and I were chatting at one point in uh, in Lisbon, actually, at the Solana conference. And uh, you had mentioned something along the lines of how Fun it was for your kids to be sending Samo to each other, yeah. And how you know it's it's this meme coin on on Solana, yeah. but it was just like this fun experience because you know they're not going to be sending each other you know hundreds of dollars in USDC, but hey, they can send each other like hundreds of Samo, and it's like this cool experience, right?
1: Yeah, I'm unashamedly a, a Samo uh, enthusiast. I, I think you are as well. Oh yeah, Samo and, and dog coins are fun. And they're popular, and, and as someone who's tried to build lots of consumer businesses, many of which have not been successful, popularity is hard to get. You know, while they don't dog coins don't do a lot today, that popularity I think is incredibly powerful. And you know, I'd say that BetDex we deliberately have you know been working with the Samo community, and and we've uh, done some fun things with them because they have something that we really want as a company, which is popularity. And so we definitely want to do a lot more with them. And I'm very bullish on Samo, We're actually quite bullish on, on dog coins in general, which is it's very rare that you get something that level of popularity that they don't figure out something to do with it. I think it's a very strong community. I, I, I think it's got a long way to go.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, one of the most fascinating things I think that's occurred over the past you know, couple of years, specifically with the, the GameStop uh, saga is that internet culture is a force. And yes, yeah. it doesn't necessarily have to equate to some sort of you know business case study or some scientific proof for yeah. something to work or be popular or have utility. And that's one of the most fascinating things about crypto to me is that the internet culture around it and how it supports... Things that on the surface appear to be maybe, you know, trivial in nature, but there's a huge community behind it. Yeah, and there's something yeah. to be said for that. And, and so I think maybe the last question I'll, I'll ask, because uh, I know we're coming up on time, is given, you know, the kind of crazy expansive growth we're seeing in, in Web3 and particularly in the types of applications on Solana, what are a handful of like the, the projects or applications that you're really excited uh, about now?
1: I think a few things, like I think Phantom is an incredible wallet and I think they have a long way to go. And so I'm very bullish on that. I, I really think that that's going to be critical onboarding people onto the L1. In terms of NFT projects, like I have a, I have a monkey. Uh, I'm incredibly impressed by that community and I've joined a lot of NFT communities. and That one is just, it's so hard to keep up. I agree. And so, yeah, I, I think they've done an amazing job. I do think there will be a bit of a, by verification of ones that clearly could become like that and, and ones that don't. And so I think a lot of NFTs at the moment are sitting in this netherland of like, are they going to maybe get there or not? And I think when it becomes apparent, <laughs> prices will reflect that. So I think that's, you know, a really interesting one. So I'm very bullish on the monkeys. I, I think it's a great community. In terms of games, it's still very early. Like, I, I'm really interested in GameFi. I think NFTs could be really interesting on games. Building games is hard, though. And I think... Feel that a lot of these games are all have uh, an amazing game priced in, uh, even though no one's seen a you know line of code or, and so that does worry me. I, I feel there's going to be a lot of failures. The only one that I hold a bit off is uh, Panzer Dogs. I've actually played their demo and it's like a pretty cute game, and the and the studio has evidence of building good games before, and so I, I you know I'm quite excited about that one. I, I've liked what they've been dropping. I am very nervous in general about the whole GameFi. I, I I think that. 2022 might be the year that we discover in in uh, crypto that building games is hard <laughs> and, and building games with NFTs in them is just as hard as building games. Those are probably the major ones. I do think that games is going to be really important though. Like that's how, but it may be more games like, you know, the Cops game or, you know, Wolf game, which is on Ethereum. It may be more games like that that are not, or even like Loot. Loot was a fascinating project last year and yeah. obviously it lost a lot of steam. But new game format where the community is actually core in building the next stages, like I just gave you the building blocks and we build it. Like I think there's a lot to go there, given that Solana is priced at a level where a much younger audience that doesn't necessarily have a lot of money can innovate. That's where I would be more excited, as opposed to AAA games, you know, porting over and suddenly, you know, their skins, which weren't really worth anything anyhow, suddenly, you know, are tradable assets. I'm not as excited about that. I'm more excited about games that are kind of weird that we don't really understand right now coming up organically.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a fair assessment. In, in almost any kind of startup boom cycle, you see you know, people just trying to innovate in, in myriad different directions, which is awesome. But ultimately, the ones that have something truly innovative that people can gravitate towards are going to be the ones that really make it and right now it's up for grabs so Solid. i'm, I'm, I'm yes. bullish on the space like you are in general i, I think that uh the, the caution that you're heating is is worthwhile but man there's a lot of really cool stuff out there and i i will tell you a lot of the game developers that i've been meeting with that are launching games are seasoned game devs yeah and they yeah. just see this as a way to kind of like hey man i always wanted to have like an indie game studio or do my own game and this is kind of a A means to facilitate that. I think the key though, to your point is how are we going to integrate these things in a way that feels like it's accretive to the game? You know, what's fascinating about your kid's view of being skeptical of these things is very wise because what we don't want is just things to be bolted on. We want them to actually add value to the experience. So TBD on that we still got lots of time <laughs> to see when this is going to yes. pan out. but yeah. Well, Nigel, this was awesome. Um, where can people find you on the internet, uh, Twitter, or, or Telegram, or wherever you're comfortable with? Twitter's the best place. I'm Nigel Eccles. I'm fully doxxed.
1: You'll see me. I'm a nice little red monkey. But yeah, I'm at Nigel Eccles on Twitter.
0: Amazing. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Nigel Eccles, man, has so many projects and companies, we couldn't even get through them all. But thank you so much for joining us on the Solana podcast, and we'll see you guys next time.
1: Thank you.